0: back with you all again this morning it's always a joy to bring the word of god to bear on on our lives and to and and to open it up and and to explain it um it's been a while nice not to be a big head on a screen this time Uh, hopefully this time uh, my internet interface won't freeze up and i won't just (laughs) um Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, please. Um, we're actually going to start in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, actually. We'll start reading there. Um, Philippians one we're going to read through 2, 4. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me therefore if there is any encouragement in christ if there is any consolation of love if there is any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose do nothing From selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This begins Paul's exhortation portion of his letter. Uh, if you do a lot of reading in Pauline literature, you'll realize Paul normally has a, a a massive theology section at the front end of all of his letters, and then he jumps into an application portion at the end. He's got his theology, and then he's like, Here, here's how you apply this to your lives. Here's how you actually practice this. Philippians is a little bit different. Philippians, he gives them a, a, a great warm greeting. It's, it's probably one of the most warm greetings of any of his epistles. It, it's such a warm and personal letter. And here he opens this this exhortation portion, not not to a portion of, here's theology, now apply it. It's well, here's the exhortation. Now give me now, now I'm gonna give you an example of it. And then I'm gonna give you another exhortation. And I'm gonna give you another example of it. And he does that four times through the whole book of Philippians, and it's a little bit different for for Paul's writing style, it's a, it's a little interesting to follow. in, in 127 through 2:4 here in our passage is his first exhortation to live in unity." And that is his main theme in, in, in the entire epistle. And then he gives us the example of Christ to follow as our basis for unity, and as, as the humility, the humble basis for our humility, in 25 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 18 of chapter two, Paul exhorts the Philippians to diligence in pursuing sanctification. And then follows that up in nineteen through thirty with the examples of both Timothy and Epaphroditus, and then in chapter three, verses one through six, he exhorts the Philippians to a vigilant joy which guards against false teaching. And then in three seven through sixteen, he uses his own life as an example of this. And then in three seventeen through four nine, Paul gives his final exhortation to continue in steadfast gospel-worthy conduct of those who are citizens of heaven. I wanted to begin this section, uh, not just in verse one, but I wanted to jump back because therefore starts our our, our chapter. We're at the beginning of a chapter and uh, we're at the mercy of those who who came before us and and gave us the verses as a way of easy reference in the Bible and and they're a blessing. But at times, in in moments like this, when you see a therefore, we need to stop for a moment and, and figure out why it's there. And we're in the middle of one of Paul's exhortation portions in this letter, And so we need to step back and figure out where is he coming from and where is he actually going to with this exhortation? Why did he say, therefore? And so when we step back, we look back to to chapter 1, verse 27. We see Paul say, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is where he begins his exhortation to the Philippians and his exhortation to them specifically to live in unity. That word for conduct It it, it comes from the Greek word for being a citizen, acting as a citizen. It's, It's a very, very special word, especially for the Philippians, because the Philippian community, Philippi, was a Roman colony. They had Roman citizenship, no matter who they were in the colony, they were able to have their Roman citizenship because of the nature of that city and where it was in the Roman Empire and how Rome treated that city. And so they all knew what Paul was talking about when he says, conduct yourselves. He's using a word that means live like a citizen of the gospel. Live as a gospel-worthy citizen. Live as a gospel-worthy citizen who lives in unity. In chapter three, verse 20, Paul then, uh, he reminds the Philippians again that our citizenship, it's not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this word that he's using here has the connotation of living as a citizen or a free man. And it bears all the connotations, responsibilities, the duties, the benefits. And it has the expectations with it of conduct and action as one who is recognized by the authority to be an identifiable, loyal, cultured, and responsible citizen of that community or that culture so the idea of conduct here is in concert with the community of faith. And so Paul's exhortation is that this conduct is meant to draw out the idea of being in the middle of a commonwealth of a faith community. And it comes with its own duties and responsibilities to that end. He, so he's drawing their attention to the fact that they may be worldly citizens of Rome or Greece, or some may have even been Persians, some were slaves, some were free men. But he's drawing the idea that the gospel demands a particular conduct of them. He wants them to understand our citizenship is not on this earth. Ultimately, it is in heaven. And so that must lead to our gospel-worthy conduct in unity as a body. And so we're jumping into the middle of this exhortation in chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says, therefore. He's resuming what he started in chapter 1, verse 27. He's taking up the main point of that previous paragraph, and so his exhortation to unity here in 2, 2 through 4 has a fourfold basis in verse 1, and this fourfold basis is a concrete expression of of verse 27, of only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so 2, 2 through 4 is that natural outworking of this gospel-worthy conduct as citizens of the gospel. And so Paul now gives the basis of this next stage of his exhortation in the form of four conditional statements. And these are the basis or the ground of his main exhortation in verse 2, which is make my joy complete. And so he uses four conditionals just to kind of introduce his exhortation. He says, if there is any comfort in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion. These are are what are called grammatically first class conditions. They're assumed true for the sake of his argument. In essence, Paul is saying, because this is true, do this. It's not a, well, if this could be the case, and it might possibly be the case that there is comfort and encouragement in Christ, it's if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is. Do this. I want to pause a minute and just kind of focus in on what he's saying in these clauses, what he's saying with these conditional statements, though. These are the basis for our, our, our unity as a body of Christ. In that first conditional, he, he says, if there is any comfort in Christ, in which there is, Paul is using a rich term for comfort. It, it, it's the same word group in Greek where we get the comforter for the Holy Spirit. It's it's our paraclete. If there's any comfort or encouragement in Christ, this is a divine reality that we have as believers. Paul is not just throwing some random conditional statement out there hoping that the believers in Philippi might maybe have some encouragement in Christ. Maybe you opened your Bible today and found a nice verse and it encouraged your soul. No, he's saying, look back at verse 29 and 30. It has been granted to you for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. He's giving them a divine reality of you have encouragement and consolation in Christ. This is a divine reality and that comes with an exhortation to live accordingly in unity. It comes from the same root as the Holy Spirit's role as our comforter and that gives us all the comfort we need to be able to face those trials. When we need that consolation, when the world is beating down on the church, I think of James Coates in Canada. When the government is literally banging on your church doors or locking them up, changing the locks on the churches so you can't actually care for your sheep. When you can't actually go and gather with the saints. Man, he's been in my prayers for a while. He needs the consolation of Christ. That is the only true comfort he can have in a situation like this. This word describes the lifting of another spirit by bringing much needed aid in the form of comfort or consolation. And Paul is formally using this word with the prepositional phrase, in Christ, his emphasis being on our union with Christ christ and the comfort brought by that union in the midst of tribulation as the philippians began their ministry and they got to preach the gospel as paul did they joined in with him in his suffering and his ministry the only thing that could get them through that it's not paul's comfort it's encouragement in christ comfort and consolation in christ The second clause, if there is any consolation of love, which there is. This word for consolation here pertains to that which offers encouragement, especially as consolation as the one before. It's a means of consolation or an alleviation of pain or an alleviation of suffering. And it refers to a solace brought about, in this case, by love. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. It does have some related words to it that are used elsewhere by Paul. And in 1 Corinthians fourteen three it refers one of its cognate nouns refers to that which serves as encouragement to one who is depressed or in grief. And so it's very similar or or borderline synonymous to the word before. But the active idea here indicates the act of cheering up or consoling. It's not just rendering an aid or solace or comfort or an encouragement to somebody, but actually giving physical needed aid to that person. It It is related, as I said, to that previous clause as an act of comforting or encouraging. And it is here used to describe the act of consoling in love. And in the context, especially with the first clause mentioning Christ by name and the next clause, the third one, mentioning the Spirit, it seems as though this would be a, a, a divine implication of God and His love. It seems Paul is pointing to the consolation believers have, first in union with Christ, and then in the love they receive from God. The consolation from God in His love it seems almost as if paul is is is, is trying to give us this uh, trinitarian structure to our unity with god the father being the implied consoling lover in this second clause in other words there's no tribulation no trial nothing so intense in our life that can separate us from the love of god because the love we have for one another though intimate though deep though personal is never enough to actually console one another to the point that we can actually give each other that kind of aid it's not able to be counted on because we're human the only love we can count on is the love from God remember the promise of God in Hebrews thirteen five. the writer of Hebrews says for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you turn over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment Turn to Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 31 and follow along as I read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? the love of God as our major consolation, our only true consolation. When the world crashes in, when we lose our jobs, when everything turns upside down in life, the love of God is our only consolation. Take courage. He who promised is faithful. He who promised will never leave you nor forsake you. And He will not abandon you in your darkest hour and nothing can separate you from Him. Or from the consolation of His love. Look at that third clause in verse 1. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Which there is. That word for fellowship. Indicates an attitude of goodwill that manifests an interest in a close relationship. And it primarily connotes a, a close association. It involves mutual interests and sharing. And Paul is pointing to a common participation that the church has with the Spirit of God. Believers at salvation receive the Spirit of God and join in this participation with the Paraclete, with our divine comforter, the one who's been given to us as our encourager, our comforter, our helper. There is a close, intimate participation we all have in the body, but there is a closer, more intimate, more personal fellowship we have in the Spirit who is given to us. And the fourth clause, if any affection and compassion, which there is. Paul uses two words here in, in this fourth conditional to describe the attitude of God toward His people, both affection and compassion. Compassion. The word for affection is uh, inner parts. Um, ancient cultures often used, um, used the bowels or the stomach or, or the inner organs to, to, to indicate or to denote uh, a strong deep affection toward one another. In the same way that we use the heart as, as as a way of indicating love for one another. I love you from my heart. I love you with all my heart. The word Paul is using here indicates the inward parts of a body which came to serve as the reference for psychological aspects of a human being, of the seat of the emotions, and mostly as the seat and source of love, sympathy, and mercy. And it refers to that inner feeling of affection and compassion or tenderness felt toward another person. And you can compare this back to chapter 1 verse 8 where Paul says that God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In the same way that we have the affection of God toward us, Paul was extending the exact same affection toward the Philippian believers. There was this deep, inner, tender mercy and love that Paul felt for the Philippians. He had this deep connection with them. And this is what he is expressing to us. That it's not just Paul who has this. It is Christ's affection. It is the affection of God for his people. And the second word is compassion. This is a display of, of concern for another's misfortune. Where one is that deep rooted, very tender compassion, an inner feeling of of very intimate personality. This is that manifestation. It is the manifestation of it. And and this word is is used nearly universally in the plural to emphasize the concrete forms of expression that are taken by the the abstract concept of it. In other words, where affection is that deep inner feeling that we have for one another and that god has toward us this compassion is that action he takes on our behalf and So this is paul's move from the inner feelings of the affection to the manifestation of that affection to compassion these are the outward actions taken motivated by the inner feeling of affection and compassion and thus if there is any deep inner tender mercy or compassion an outward manifestation of mercy is where Paul is driving with this. These words together then denote the tender mercies and compassion of Christ experienced by the Philippians when they became Christians through the preaching of the gospel. Beloved, we have and are the objects of God's tender mercies, of His compassion. One commentator summarizes Verse 1, this way, he says, The fourfold basis of Paul's exhortation is grounded in divine certainties. The Philippians know God's comfort and salvation in Christ. They have experienced the consolation that Christ's love for them has brought in their sufferings and dangers. Theirs is a participation, a common sharing in the Holy Spirit, and they have been blessed through His gracious ministry to their hearts and lives. When God began his good work in their midst through the preaching of the gospel, they were recipients of his tender mercies and compassion. Since they have been blessed with such riches in a magnificent way, let them hear Christ's exhortation through their beloved apostle. And so Paul is saying, because of your gospel-worthy conduct, because you have been called in Christ, and because you have this call on your life, live a gospel-worthy life. This is so important. God has graciously blessed you with both belief and suffering for His sake. You thus have confidence to stand together without fear in the ministry that God has called you to, in the face of your opponents. And because of this, if there is any, without any distinction or exception, consolation in Christ, if there is any cons- consoling love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any deep, tender mercy, or compassion an outward manifestation of mercy, then make my joy complete. And here is Paul's main exhortation in this section of his letter. He says, Make my joy complete. And the word for complete here means to bring to a completion that which has already begun. It's not cup, he, he has an empty cup that he sets in front of the Philippians and he says, Fill it up to overflowing, and you've completed my joy you fulfilled my joy he says back in chapter one he has joy in them in all his remembrance of the philippians paul has joy and so he's telling them fulfill it complete it bring it to completion but he's not just saying make my joyful make me joyful and and complete that for the sake of my own joy That's not the reason Paul is is exhorting them to this. This is his main command, but he he then explains it. He then says, by being of the same mind. And this is really where he's driving at. Being of the same mind. This is Paul's way of saying, think the same way. Don't be automatons. Don't, Don't... Don't believe that you think that that your thoughts all have to be so conformed that uh, everything that Pastor Brandon says you absolutely think or everything that uh, Phil says you absolutely think. But the mission of the gospel and gospel-worthy conduct is that your thinking patterns are the same. And so Paul here lays out five means by which unity in the local church is achieved. The first is the same love. The second is the same focus. Third is the same thought. Fourth is the same consideration. And fifth is the same deference. Not difference, deference. Look back at verse 2. Paul goes on to say, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And here, here is where his emphasis in this exhortation truly is. By being of the same mind. His completed joy is, is merely a byproduct or a side benefit of the Philippian church being unified. His command to complete his joy is explained in that clause, by being of the same mind. Literally, uh, one, of the, one way to translate it very woodenly is, to, is, is that Paul says, that is to say, thinking the same thing or thinking the same way or in the same fashion. What Paul is stressing is that the pathway to unity for the Philippians is to be concerned about being unified around a single profound manner of thinking that is the lens through which they live as gospel-worthy citizens in the world. Think worldview. Think ministry focus, mission statement. Think what is it that motivates ministry. It's used to describe, this word is used to describe a person's whole attitude and disposition of mind uh, one's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his or her life. Worldview. Is the gospel your worldview? Is your view of the gospel what scripture actually presents it to be? It express, th- this word is expressing more than an activity of intellect, but a movement of the will. It's both interest and decision at the same time. And so the phrase, being of the same mind, describes the general disposition of harmony, which should be the background against which the whole Christian fellowship moves. In other words, this being of the same mind describes the unity and the sameness of the Christian worldview that binds all believers together in unity. And the following exhortations are Paul's instruction on the means by which that is achieved. So the first one, the same love. Same love. Maintaining the same love. This refers to the, to the love that we have for one another as believers, both locally and universally. It, it's a reciprocal love that in the context answers to Christ's love, to the love that Christ has for us. And it has a special interest in turning its attention toward the needs and the benefits of others. This is an an intense reciprocal love. Here Paul is using a a present active participle. It is something that is meant to be ongoing. It is not something that just happens once and you're done. It's something that you maintain and continue to have. Literally having the same love. But there's a unity in it. And the same love that I show to you is the same love you show to me. The same love that Pastor Brandon gives to you is the same love you give to him. And vice versa. Remember what love you have been shown by Christ. Being motivated by his love for you and, and how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and that is the example that Christ set for us the love of Christ went to the went to the point of death which begs the question to what extent does your love go for your brothers and sisters does it just go to the sidewalk Does it go as far as a, a, a Twitter repost or a Facebook share? How far does your love for the church, your love motivated by the humility and love of Christ go? Remember, the name of Christ and the reputation of His bride is at stake. Remember the new, the new commandment we've been given by Christ. Listen as I read from John 13. John 13. and This is the night of his betrayal, of Jesus' betrayal. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, In verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Beloved, we are called to gospel-worthy conduct that sacrifices on behalf of one another. How far does your love extend? To what extent will you go to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? The church cannot risk or afford to abandon a true affection for one another that is self-sacrificial in nature in the same way that Christ showed his love for his bride. Second. The second means is the same focus. And the word Paul uses here for united in spirit is a compound word from the preposition meaning together and the noun for spirit or life, and thus he says, "United in spirit, or something pertaining to similarity of attitude and spirit." It's a harmonious or being one in spirit. This, this is a, a connotation of a unity deeper than verbal acquiescence. It, it, it's a unity that drives into the very life-stimulating nature and essence of who a person is. With the near context of this usage being sandwiched between two uses of the word for thinking, here it seems likely that Paul is again drawing attention back to a togetherness or unity in thought that ought to mark the local assembly of believers. And thus, same focus. United in spirit, according to the New American Standard Translation. United in spirit. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And Paul is using it to describe the oneness of mind in thinking believers need to have to bring about true unity. And yet this oneness of mind is deeper than mental or verbal acquiescence. It is a knitting together of our core essence and inner life to one another in harmonious action. And this is made all the more relevant for the Philippian church Because in chapter 4, we read that there are two women in the church who are at odds with one another. Euodia and Syntyche are living in a manner completely contrary to this exhortation. And so, thinking this letter is probably read out loud after Paul wrote it, and then you've got two women sitting on either side of the congregation, very suddenly, turning beet red and wondering uh, what the conversations after church is (laughs) going to render. Paul is using the same verbiage in, in Philippians 4 as he does here. In Philippians 4.2, uh, he says, I urge, I, I exhort Euodia and Syntyche to think the same in the Lord. He uses the same verbiage as he does here. He, he, he's literally calling them out before he calls them out. And so this is a very, very personal thing for them in the Philippian church. It would have been a smaller church. They would have known each other. It, the, the two women at odds would not have been something in, in the back room of a 500-member church. It, it would have been something out in the open, and, and people would have known about it. And so, as this letter is read, they would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. And Yodia and Syntyche would be thinking, uh-oh, he found out. We're in trouble. And Paul's exhortation is not one of rebuke. It is one of exhortation, admonishment, encouragement. He's using the same, same word there for exhort in, in chapter 4 is the same word for paraclesis. To urge, encourage, and comfort, to console. We don't know what they were at odds about, but, but Paul is lovingly bringing them face to face with their sin. And saying, live united in spirit. And that is gospel worthy conduct. Paul is driving at the means by which unity may be obtained. Not only by these two women at odds in the assembly, but also by the body as a whole. And it seems disunity is one of Paul's personal pet peeves. Uh, all through the book of Acts, he's dealing with Gentile versus Jew relations. And, and then in all of his letters, it seems like unity plays some kind of a major role in some fashion or another, whether he's dealing with personal uh, church divisions or having to defend himself against different congregations. Uh, listen in, in, in Galatians chapter five. This is, this is what Paul says disunity in the body looks like. Galatians five thirteen through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Not Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is very concerned with unity in the body. In his time, the church was a brand new thing. Unity is his major emphasis. Most people have been a part of a church split, whether they were old enough or not to remember it. My father's been a pastor for 40 years. He's been a part of plenty. He's now a conciliator, and so he now deals with it on a regular basis, helping other churches not split. Paul is very concerned with the fact that, That his anthropology says mankind is naturally selfish. They will seek their own constantly. And he paints a morbid picture in in Galatians 5 of what disunity is. Disunity in the church is literally the picture of a man standing on a street corner in the view of the entire community and biting his arm off. It's disgusting. And that is the picture of what disunity in the body is like. Beloved, what are your main focuses in life? What do you focus on? Personally, interpersonally? Here at church. What drives you? Why do you why do you come to church on a Sunday morning? Is it just for a good feeling? Is it, is it to feel like you're a part of a community? Or is it because you've been called to a life lived in a worthy fashion of the gospel as a citizen of heaven? When you think of your role in the church, does it conform to what the word of God says? Does it conform to the mission statement of this church? Are you actively striving to minister in a unified fashion, pursuing the same focus as those ministering around you? The third means of unity that Paul gives is the same thought. Look again at the end of verse 2. Paul says, intent on one purpose... This speaks of a life directed toward a single goal and reinforces the previous singularity of focus. Paul is saying that the church must be intent upon and focused upon a singular aim. In light of the orientation of both Paul and the Philippians toward the gospel and the proclamation of Christ and in the light of the exhortation to live as gospel-worthy citizens, Paul is stressing that the singular focus, the same thought which the Philippians ought to have, is to be gospel-oriented as they relate to and care for one another. Are you gospel-focused in your ministry? Or is there a hidden self-motivation behind why you love on other people? The goal and mental singularity of the church is to be so focused on the gospel and nothing else that as everything in life fades away, Christ comes more and more into focus. As Christ comes more and more into focus, the clearer and easier it is for us as believers to love and care for one another. When Christ and his love is the central thought process of the church, reciprocal love is the overflow and unity is attained. Are you intent on one purpose or do you split your attention in so many different ways that unity is impossible? Are you intent on the proper focus? Are you intent on the one proper purpose of the gospel? The fourth means by which unity is achieved is the same consideration. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's my favorite marriage counseling verse. I love to just tell them, Hey, go read Philippians chapter 2, come back in a week, see how you feel. Uh you can get a real uh you can either get a good kick out of the people who come in and they're 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 very humble and, and and very repentant over their sin and it's fun to see that and see the growth. But then there are those who go, Oh yeah, it's easy. I mean, yeah, if my wife would just love me that way. See where we need to work. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Is there anything more countercultural than that in, in the United States? It, it, it's crazy. In, it, in a culture in the 21st century that is so disney yes, that's a new word, I coined it, put my stamp on that. In a culture that is so run by the Disney worldview of follow your heart, You don't find this even in most churches today. It's all about self-care. I guarantee you if you were to read this verse without giving reference to the fact that it's in the Bible or Paul, the first words out of somebody's mouth, if you were to use this as exhortation to them to live a gospel-worthy life, their thought would be, yeah, but what about me? If they don't say it out loud, it's at least in their head. But my wife is a nagger. My husband's a drunkard. He never cleans up. He leaves his socks all over the stairs all the time. Just ask my wife it's true. I guarantee you, if the thought, if the words are not leaving their mouth of, what about me? They are at least thinking that. This unity which Paul is exhorting the Philippians to can only be achieved by having the same love, the same focus, the same thought, and now he's driving a wedge into the condition of the human heart of motivation and ambition. Paul says that unity can only be obtained when believers have the same consideration for one another. And what he means by that is, I am nothing, you are everything. That is why Paul was willing in the prison, in Philippi, not to leave when the doors were opened after the earthquake. That is why Paul was willing to be stoned and beaten and shipwrecked for the sake of the gospel. Because he was nothing. The gospel was everything and the souls of those who he needed to be proclaimed was everything to him. There's a double negative in the Greek here. It doesn't come through in the English very well, but it serves as as a forcible to, to it serves to forcibly draw attention to the absoluteness of this reality. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul is just kind of putting this this stamp on it that selfishness is no longer allowed here. Get it out. Get rid of it. Selfish ambition? Gone. The force of this statement from Paul is such that there is absolutely no self-serving manner of life in the church allowed. Believers, we are called to put on, we are called upon to put away any and every selfish thought we have and to replace it with a humility of mind that regards every brother and sister as more important than ourselves even the hard to love ones or more importantly especially the hard to love ones the ones who come in dirty and and filthy because they haven't had a chance to go home and shower before they've been able to make it to the fellowship the ones who are naggy or complainy or aren't all there mentally yes they are more important than me they are here for the fellowship of the saints and the presentation of the gospel. It is our duty as gospel worthy citizens to love them. And not just love them, but to, consider, to think about them, to consider them, to count them as someone more important than me. It is the abandonment of any thought for my own glory in the pursuit of glorifying Christ by lifting up his people over myself. What is your first thought when the needs of a saint are presented to the church? Is it the cost or, or the impact it will have on you to, to reach out and serve and, and to love them? Is it the cost of of what rendering aid or, or encouragement will do to your time, your money, your energy? Or do you freely regard your brothers and sisters in Christ as being more important to you, more important than yourself to the extent that your time, your resources, your money, your energy are freely available to the saints, whatever the need When the needs arise, is your hand one of the first to go up? If not, why? If not, why? On the more fun side, can you imagine what a church that practiced this perfectly would look like? That would be a fellowship and assembly to be a part of nothing from selfishness or empty conceit the only rivalry in that church is who gets to serve who just beating each other up at the front door to see who gets to let the other one in first that 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 would be <laughs> that'd be unity i'd pay to see paul here exhorted believers to unity by having the same love pursuing the same focus having the same thought, having the same consideration, and now he rounds out this exhortation with an admonition to have the same deference. Remember, not difference, deference. I'm not contradicting myself in that. Meaning, in line with the previous statement, deferring to the need of another. Look at verse 4. Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A distinguishing mark of love is that it is not self-seeking. The word that Paul is using here for look out for has the idea of keeping one's eyes on someone or something. It's the idea of fixing the attention on Something, fixing the gaze, being attentive to something in particular. Paul is advocating that the Philippians fix their gaze attentively upon one another's interests. And he gives both a negative and and positive focus here. Negatively, as believers, we are not to be focused on our own interests, or not merely focused on our own interests. Positively, believers are to be intently focused on the interests of their brothers and sisters. And so there's a negative and a positive focus here. This prohibition, though, is, is softened by Paul. If you look in verse 4, but also for the interests of others. So if you have the New American Standard, you'll see the, the italicized merely The ESV says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is softening that that prohibition. There is a, a level of hope there. He is concerned primarily with the selfish preoccupation with one's own affairs that marks the natural human condition, and that is his prohibition what he is saying is do not be so concerned with surviving that you flip survival with comfort don't be so concerned with your own survival and comfort selfishly that you neglect the needs of those around you he's not prohibiting any and all interest in one's own affairs <coughs> He's merely prohibiting the selfish preoccupation with one's own state of affairs. And so here he uses a word that points to each individual believers. And the ESV captures it better than the New American Standard says. The, the, the ESV reads, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is making it abundantly clear that unity, that unity and selfless sacrificial service in the interests of others is the duty and gospel-worthy responsibility of every individual believer. Every single person sitting here has a responsibility to live as a gospel-worthy citizen of heaven in unity. You all have a part to play in the unity of this body. Every single one of you. Your gifting. And the Lord has gifted every single one of you for ministry in this body. Your gifting is meant to that end. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What do you need to do or change in your life so that you defer to the benefit of others around? Do you defer to the benefit of others? Now, I'm not real great with segues, so Mother's Day. Yeah, it's uh, the best application I could think of. For this passage, mothers are the ones who are built for this, specifically in the home. Now there are some mothers who fail at this, and we've probably all known them. Some of us may have even had them. Not me, sorry. My mom's awesome. But motherhood describes this perfectly. It's a wonderful analogy for what Paul is talking about here. A mother is one who literally lays down her time, her energy, and her efforts at everything in life for the sake of raising kids. Gives it all up for the sake of that. That is what motherhood is. And one final thought. Follow along as I read just the next six verses in Philippians 2. And this is Paul's, Paul's example of what this, this deference looks like, what this humility of mind looks like in the interest of others. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves, this gospel-worthy, gospel-centered, gospel-focused, unity-driven attitude in yourselves. Like,